This episode of Choose Table is brought to you by Warby Parker. Visit warbyparker.com slash table. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of medical conditions and medical operations done on Black women. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, y'all. Welcome to Truth's Table, Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. I'm McKemini. And I'm Christina. This table is built by Black women and for Black women. So welcome to the table, C. How you doing, girl? I am doing good. You know, E, there is actual sunshine out today. Can you believe that? Come on, somebody. <laughs> and I'm telling I'm you, really I, happy. I need all the vitamin D in my life. <laughs> So I'm very of grateful the for the sunshine. I even went to Payless. No, no, no plug to Payless. But you know they've got their, all the stores are closing <laughs> in the country. So I decided to yeah. buy a pair, a pair of sandals, thinking that that would make you know spring come faster. So we'll see. I'm shopping my way prophetically <laughs> to a new season of the year. How are you doing, E? How come are on. you doing? <laughs> oh, I'm good. You know the sun is shining. You know I'm happy about Amen. that. I'm starting to see bugs come out. You know I don't like bugs, but it's a good sign that it's warming up. So I'm okay with that, I guess. Um, <laughs> you know, I went to the gym this morning. It was packed. I was like, okay, so it's getting warmer. People coming out a little bit more. So I'm good. You know, I have no complaints. Um, and Michelle is not here. Um, but if y'all were watching the Finding Justice um, documentary on BET, you most likely saw Michelle on that documentary with all her activism and what she's doing um, to liberate our people. So lift her up. Keep on lifting her up. Keep on praying for her work um, and really for the liberation um, of our people. Uh, so as usual, though, we never leave y'all without. We are still in the UOK Sis series. Man, um, and I'm telling you, there's been a reaction to it already. <laughs> a huge reaction. Uh, we, I didn't really expect that, but hey, you know, yeah, it, it's yeah. happened. The sisters are activated. Um, and so on the table today uh, is the topic of medical apartheid. And I am mm. honored to bring sure. our guest to the table, Harriet A. Washington. How you doing, sis? Welcome to the table. Thank you so much, Akemini. I'm very pleased to be here. Yeah, I mean, we we are honored to have you here. And y'all, just in case you don't know about Harriet A. Washington, let me tell you a little something about her, okay? Well, a lot of something, I should say. Harriet. <laughs> run, 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 them da- run it down. Run it down. Run it down. Because, you know, Black women, we <laughs> doing all the things, okay? Um, so <laughs> Harriet A. Washington wrote Infectious Madness, The Surprising Science of How We Catch Mental Illness, while the 2015 to 2016 Miriam Shearing Fellow at the University of Nevada's Black Mountain Institute. She is a science writer, editor, and ethicist who has been a research fellow in medical ethics at Harvard Medical School, visiting fellow at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a visiting scholar at DePaul University College of Law, and a senior research scholar at the National Center for Bioethics at Tuskegee University. She has also held fellowships at Stanford University, holds a degree in English, English from the University of Rochester, an MA in journalism from Columbia University, and in 2016 was elected a fellow of the New York Academy of Medicine. She is a lecturer in bioethics at Columbia University. Miss Washington has written widely for popular and science publications and has also been published in refereed books and journals such as Nature, JAMA, the American Journal of Public Health, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Harvard Public Health Review, and the Journal of Law, Medicine, and Ethics. She has been editor of the Harvard Journal of Minority Public Health and a guest editor for the Journal of Law, Medicine, and Ethics. Her book, A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism and the Assault on the American Mind, will be published in July 2000. 2019. And her other books include Delhi Monopolies, a shocking corporate takeover of life itself and the consequences for your health and our medical future, and a medical apartheid, the dark history of experimentation from colonial times to the present. 
which won a National Book Critics Circle Award, the Penn Oakland Award, and the American Library Association Black Caucus Nonfiction Award. And in February 2018, the statue of James Marion Sims was removed from New York Center's Central Park in response to medical apartheid's exposure of his exploitive surgeries on enslaved Black women. Harriet A. Washington is doing the work, y'all. Welcome to the table, Harriet. We are honored to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I just, I don't even know. Christine, I don't even know oh, how to start. We have, we have oh, so I many do. There are many ways. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Well, Go ahead. Well, well, first of all, Harriet, I, you know, just even thinking about that bio that, um, that E just read, I mean, you have quite the... Um, accomplished career and you have put in a great deal of work. For me, I think you're you're a clear example of um, vocational activism and what it means to use scholarship to advance the cause of justice. And so I'm just, I just want to start by saying just the truth, (laughs) that statement of your work, Harriet. And if you could just start by giving us maybe a, a little bit of a peek behind the curtain of how you came to get into this topic, to even get to the place of writing a book like, uh, medical apartheid. I began as a pre-medical student, which in retrospect was a very good thing because it meant that I took the basic science courses that one needs to apply to medical school. I never applied to medical school. I had the background that enabled me to read medical journals and physicians' writings on my own and interpret them on my own without a filter. And that's very important because filters have been applied very heavily to mask physicians' behavior and to present a more benign face to their work. So, um, But the reason why I initially decided to investigate that face is because of something that happened while I was... Um, Working in a hospital, um, Christine, you know Strong Memorial Hospital. It's part of the University I do. Of I do. Mm-hmm. I attended that school. Okay. For sure. Well, I worked at Strong Hospital for years and years in a variety of, uh, usually as a technician though. But then I was promoted. I began managing the Poison Control Center, which I loved. But it was a small center. It wasn't well-funded. We needed more space. And another medical department uh, granted us more space. So when we occupied the new space... I found some old file cabinets. Now, this was back in the very early 80s. It's, no one was talking about healthcare disparities then. And the racial disparities in hospitals were much more naked than they are now and much more pronounced. You would walk to the hospital and all the black people you saw, um, vast majority of them were working in housekeeping and clerical positions. And um, there were relatively few black medical students. Uh, The ones who were there did not always fare terribly well. And so bias was very dramatic then, but no one was talking about it. So I um, went into their new space and found an old file cabinet, decided to empty it out and use it. It had files in it. The files were old. They were dating from like the early 70s. There might have been some from the 60s. I'm not sure. But early 70s. And kidney transplantation was then a novel technology. And these were from people who had been considered for kidney transplants. Being the nosy person that I always have been, I read every file. And as I read them, I was chilled because I had noticed immediately, you couldn't help but notice the files were very thick. You opened them up. They are, of course, they were thick because these are people who were candidates for transplant. And they had not only their vital signs and medical progress recorded, but they also had a thick social profile, you know, And the social profile was basically intended to bolster their case, to prove that they had insurance coverage, that they had um, close family and social support that would help them through this process, which was then, of course, being new, much more risky. And so part of the selection process was, do you have a family or or money who will support you? You have the funds to afford the treatment. Okay. So the thick files documented all that. The thin files were basically empty. And I couldn't help but notice that the thin files seemed to be those of black people. And I thought, this is shocking. What a, you know, again, a naked disparity, a very dramatic disparity. So I began reading them. And I, these two files I looked at in detail. The ones I remember were a black gentleman and a white gentleman around the same age. Both were retired, both were insured. So they had the funds for the procedure. Both had families that they were connected to. So they would have social support, but the white gentleman's file was thick, full of documentation. The black gentleman's file had a single page in it 
Mm. On the social profile, somebody had written Negro and underlined it. Mm. And the physician wrote that their plan for the patient was not to seek a transplant, but to help him prepare for his eminent demise. Wow. Mm. And I knew the doctor who had written and signed that. He was someone I looked up to. And I felt like I'd been hit in the stomach. Wow. It was really dramatic. And um, again, at that time, no one's talking about this racial disparities in healthcare. Right. If anything, it's being downplayed. But I was certain that they were there. And um, I'd been documenting it. I wasn't a writer then. And I, so I, I, don't, I didn't know why I was documenting it. <laughs> I think at that time, I was anticipating I might spend the rest of my life doing poison control. You know, I loved it. But I still needed to document this. So I began documenting there. And then in my travels, I worked as a medical social worker. I worked as a running poison um, um, pregnancy prevention programs. Um, I, was, I kept documenting this. I kept finding documents that would show these really dramatic differences in treatment by the healthcare system of black and white people. And they were allied with dramatically different health profiles. And I had reams and reams of documentation, no idea what I would do with them. Mm. But then um, in 1992, when I was working as an editor at USA Today, I won a fellowship to Harvard School of Public Health. Mm. And as I took courses there... I realized that now people were aware of the problem and people were actively studying the problem, but they weren't studying the history of the problem. They were acting like this is something that had just sort of sprung full blown. Right. When I knew from the things I'd been documenting that this is a problem that had been building up for three centuries. Wow. So that's why I wrote the book. Wow. Thank you for that, Harriet. And yeah, I love how you just talked about the, this didn't come out of thin air. This did not come happen in a vacuum, um, which actually leads to my, my question. Um, I know in your bio, uh, we, we talked, mentioned uh, the toppling, right, of uh, yes. James Marion Sims uh, statue. And I'm, I'm thinking um, back and, and wanting to ask you if you could talk to us about James Marion Sims and his experimentation on Black enslaved women. I'm thinking of um, um, Anarcha. You know who uh, who you spoke about? Yeah. Yes, and who had a um, vesco? I could be pronouncing this wrong. Who had vesco-vaginal fistula? Can you speak exactly to us right. about? Was that correct? Is that how, I hope I pronounced no, that right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so, can you speak to us about um, his experimentations and, and 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 talk to us about Anarcha and and, uh, and yeah, just what he the, the, the just things that he did, the sadistic things I, I, that I, the way I phrase it is sadistic things that he did to enslave women. Oh, I think they qualify as sadism, definitely. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I'd be happy to. Dr. Yeah. James Marion Sims is important, not because he was a, a rare, unusual monster. He's mm. important because he was so typical. Mm, my, mm. My. What he did was perfectly consonant with medical practice during his time, and even in some circles today in this country. So he's important because what he did was the average abuse. And by that, I mean that... Um, I'll talk in a minute about the things that he did. But it's important to understand that all the, there were no gynecologists during his time. That term hadn't come into use yet. But they had women's doctors, people who focused on the health and disease of women. All these doctors um, perfected their reproductive uh, surgical advances using mm -hmm. black women mm -hmm. or mulatto women. They used to always make distinctions, but they were all enslaved women of color. They used these women because unlike white women, these women could not say no. This is really not in contention. Even white historians of the period agree to that. That's why black women were used because mm. you could force them right. into surgery. Uh, they, had no, they had no will. They had no right. right to say yes or no. No one asked their opinion. And if they fought back, they could actually be killed for that. Mm -hmm. So they had no recourse. And what Dr. Sims did was there was a terrible complication of uh, prolonged fruitless childbirth mm. during the Victorian right. era. Terrible. Mm. Yeah, resulting in openings between the, in the genitalia between mm -hmm. the vagina, rectum, and urethra, and um, terrible condition. It meant that the women mm. were incontinent of urine, mm -hmm. sometimes feces, mm -hmm. constant infection, constant mm. pain. Um, they would smell, um, and they would be social pariahs, essentially. For Victorian women... This meant that they had they suffered a social death. Right. If you read in Victorian novels, sometimes they will allude to some poor woman who's kept up in the attic or in a back room who can never come out in society. That woman often had 
vaginal fistula. Wow. And these women acquired this disease because um, there would be a prolonged child childbirth uh, during which they were not successful in bringing the baby through the pelvis. And the prolonged pressure of the baby's body onto the tissues over the pelvis would cause them to die mm. and fall away and become necrotic. Now that happened to white women, but it happened much more often to enslaved black women. James Marion Sims was very quick to explain to people why. Because enslaved black women, he said, were essentially whores. Mm, they were sexually profligate Jezebels who would have sex with anybody, always eager to have sex. And most other Victorian doctors agreed heartily with him. And also they were dirty. They were not clean. And they and also he didn't explain why, because of course he could not explain why. It was not logical. But he also said it was also because they were stupid and ignorant. He said, whenever you find stupidity and ignorance, you're going to find diseases like vesical vaginal fistula. So he blamed these slave women for their own condition. But the interesting thing is, you know who was really guilty? You know who who the condition um should be blamed on? I imagine. Mm. I have a guess. Yep. Slave masters. <laughs> yes. yes. You can guess, right. Caused by enslavement. Mm. Because number one, the slave diet, as Kenneth Kippel writes in, in his books, and there are other historians that document this, the slave diet was a starvation diet. You know, you see the movies. Yes, yes. They see the big white house and the slaves planting their own vegetables. That almost never happened. Right. These slaves were given awful, didn't have access to vegetables very often. They actually were on a subsistence starvation diet, and it was an unvaried diet. And so nutritional deficiencies were rife among slaves, including vitamin D deficiency. Vitamin D deficiency causes rickets and also causes a rachitic um, pelvis, a flat, shallow pelvis, and the baby's head mm. would be too large to pass through it. These women had bone deformities caused by starvation that made them unable to give birth normally. The other factor was that these black women gave birth three years younger than the average white women. You ask a white doctor, you ask a slave master why that was, and they'll kill, give you the same old song about these women are sexually reckless and promiscuous, and that's why. No, these women were forced into sexual relations mm -hmm. early because slave masters profited from the um, birth of these children. These children became their property. Even the children that they themselves fathered became their property. So um, Thomas Jefferson wrote, I consider a slave woman who gives birth every other year as profitable as the best worker on the farm. Mm. So you've got enslaved black women who are malnourished to the point where they can't give birth normally and who are um, forced into birth too early. You know, this early maternal mortality, they weren't fully developed enough to give birth. So that's why they suffered vesicular fistula. Now, when they suffered it, Dr. Sims said he was going to cure it, but he was not interested in, there was some interest in curing the black women because from the perspective of the slave owners, the black women, um, vesicle vaginal fistula was a disaster mm -hmm. because they couldn't work. Right. So they did want them treated, but mm -hmm. you know, they were only going to use black women because you're not going to use a white woman for that. Number one, white women could say no, which they did. And number two, the Victorian era, women were put on a pedestal. They were accorded a great deal of respect. And most doctors, you know, socially, it would be condemned, you know, to force them into painful experimental surgery over and over again with no anesthesia, with, again, certainly against their will. It just couldn't be done. Right. But it could be done to women of color, and that's what he did. Now, Sims is important because he did this, but so did men, all these other oh, women yeah. surgeons. Mm -hmm. They also perfected their techniques, whether it was um, hysterectomies, um, <sighs> what, you know, a wide variety of procedures, because cesarean birth, all perfected on women of color who could not say no. So when Sims did, did these surgeries, uh, being, one slave, probably in Arca, had 30 surgeries over five years. And he didn't, he didn't give them um, anesthesia. It's very interesting because some um, very well-trained and very intelligent people um, say, well, he didn't give um, them anesthesia because there was no anesthesia. Anesthesia mm -hmm. wasn't in the medical journals until 1846. But they don't understand that today you can't give, um, you can't give a modality until it's been te thoroughly tested mm -hmm. and written up in the medical journals, right? But that's not what was happening during that era. 
Mm. People often use um, use treatments and never wrote them up or wrote them up like 10 years after they began using them. There was mm. not this rush to publish. Publishing was not as important. People weren't interested in patenting and publishing. And so many um, anesthetics were indeed in use, but they hadn't mm. been medical journals. And there were poise, like Harvard had a painting in the Countway Library. When I was at Harvard, I used to pass that painting every single day. Oh. And it's and the name of the painting is First Operation Under Ether. Mm. So people come away thinking, oh, that's the first time they use ether, 1846. But that painting is a complete oh. lie. Yeah. In that painting, there are people painted there who were not mm. there. And it was mm. only a demonstration. It was not the first use of it. It's important to understand that if you look at Sim's own writings, he himself says he considered using anesthesia, but didn't because it wasn't worth the trouble and risk. So why not? Why was it worth the trouble? Because these scientists had a suite of beliefs about African-Americans that were not true, but they were very useful in providing a rationale for abusing Black people in the medical sphere. One of those beliefs was that Black people don't feel pain. So they would say that, yes. well, of course you could use anesthesia. Uh, you could do these surgeries on the women without anesthesia. They don't feel the pain. Mm. In fact, um, a very inaccurate article ran in Harper's a year, a few years ago. They asked me to respond to it. I responded, then they wouldn't print my response. Mm-hmm. My response was basically, this is full of falsehoods, you know. Mm. But in that article, you know, they had people, physicians saying, well, you know, you have to understand it probably wasn't that painful. I'm like, oh, really? Let's see you try it, you know, with your daughter or your wife. We'll see how painful it is, mm-hmm. you know. But how can you say in like 2017 that it wasn't that painful? You know. So um, anyway, that's essentially what Sims did with these women. And when he was able to finally, he had the technique to close the uh, last. No, he treated one woman, was able to successfully close one of her fistulae, one, Mm, one. didn't bother to totally cure her, didn't bother to cure the others. He immediately left the popular to um, basically profit from his discovery. He went to um, France, came to personal doctor, Rempis Eugene, cured her, then came to New York City where he was lionized, treated, you know, he became the star of the, of the um, New York Academy of Medicine and later was elected um, president of the American mm-hmm. Medical Association. So this, this surgery made him, and it was made on the backs of these black women. Also, when he got to New York, he did an interesting thing he published a journal article about the surgeries, mm. but he illustrated it with pictures of white women. Mm. So mm-hmm. he knew that there that using these black women had been unethical or at least distasteful. Right. He had to have known that. And so he tried to cover his tracks. You know, one of the things that really interests me is the use of art to uh, perpetuate medical lies. I've noticed that it's done really often, and I, I've written about that several times. So anyway, that was Dr. Sims and his duplicity. Mm. Wow. <laughs> and it's important to remember, again, that he was typical. He was not unusual. Yeah. Right. So one of the things that you mentioned, Harry, which kind of sparked my memory a little bit just around the area of um, yeah, ra- racist science, right, and, and science, mm-hmm. pseudoscience that's used to perpetuate racist ideology and practices and profit off of black bodies. And I was thinking about um, Cartwright's work around dreptomania and um, yes. and mm-hmm. other just, just racist lies, right, that still are working their way throughout um, the America, American collective memory and behavior today. And one of the ones that you mentioned directly was this mythology that Black people don't feel pain in the same way that white people or other people do. And I'm wondering if there were other examples of these kind of racist mythologies about the Black body um, that even maybe even working themselves out today. Absolutely. Pain is a, actually a very good example. Mm. Every couple years, a well well-conducted study shows that American physicians distrust Black accounts of pain. American physicians count Black pain. The last one was in 2016, University of Virginia. They found that 50% of medical students and a similar percentage of practicing physicians did not feel that Black people felt pain the white whites do. And frankly, this belief around pain is only one. There were so many beliefs. The American School of Ethnology, a collection of scientists and physicians in the Victorian era, they had a suite of um, 
imaginary diseases and imaginary immunities that they ascribe to black people. And many of them we still believe now. Sometimes you will not find people admitting in so many words they believe them, but we practice right, them. Right, right. Yes. So they include things like blacks are dramatically unintelligent. Mm. So we believe that now, right? How many times do you have to hear, not only from racists, but from everyday people, well, blacks have an average 15-point I- IQ gap between blacks and whites, and that means that blacks are not as smart as white people. Oof. That's what we encounter every single day, right? Yes. So they also said that black people had a sexuality that was closer to that of running animals than of human beings. Black mm. people are not able to control their extremely intense and strong sexual behavior. We see evidence of that every single day. Right. It's one of the ways that black men are demonized on a daily basis. You're right. You know? Um, so in terms of black women, oh, it's ridiculous. I mean, think about the Nor plant. Um, remember how in the early eighties, there were uh, judges who would sentence people to have Nor plant implanted. If they went to court, they were found guilty. The judge would offer them an option. Okay. You can go to jail for eight years or you can have Nor plant. Mm. And what's Nor plant, Harriet? Can you explain that? Contraceptive. Mm. It's implanted under the skin that the woman cannot remove. It's got to be removed by a doctor. Mm. Okay. So essentially it's chemical castration is how I think of it for women. And so women were told, oh, you've been using drugs. You've been convicted. Well, you have to go to jail unless you take Norplan, which case will let you stay out of jail. So they were asking women to trade their reproductive power mm. for their freedom. Mm. That was the cost mm-hmm. of their freedom. When studies were done in the aftermath of that, 86% of the women who were treated this way were black or Hispanic. This was clearly directed at women of color, not at white women. So um, so this belief in sexuality is very strong and frankly doesn't sound any any signs of, of dating. Another aspect of it that hmm. seems clear to me is um, the Me Too movement. You know, we hear a great yeah. deal of, um, you know, concern about white women who are being yeah. By powerful men, but what happens to black women who report being abused by powerful men? Come on, Harriet. Yes. How many rape cases were prosecuted in the South by black women against white men? Consider all the white masters and police officers and just plain louts in the South who repeatedly raped black women. How many were brought to justice? Mm. Wow. One. There was one case where the man was found guilty. Um, a really good book called The Dark End of the Street, mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm, yes. This belief in a black and a very potent and malevolent black sexuality. Um, remember that black women's sexuality was used as an excuse for abusing black women. Right. I mean, when black women were being raped and having right. mulatto children, mm-hmm. um, doctors and law enforcement people were saying, oh, these black women are having these mixed babies because they want to have sex with everybody. So again, it was leading to that. So also, and there were things like imaginary diseases. I find that interesting too, because you mentioned the pedomania, and there's also hematuria, Ethiopica, a whole suite of diseases that only black people got. And if you look at the symptoms of these diseases, there are things like refusing to work, talking back to the master, breaking the master's property, you know, heaven forbid, striking the master, or running away. Now, what do these all, these hell have in common? A lack of enthusiasm for slavery. Right, 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 <laughs> right, right. And people were punished harshly for this, you know, usually beaten mm. and worked aggressively. So, and there's also the belief that um, black people did not suffer heat disease. Black mm. people did not die from malaria. Black people did not die from yellow fever, which is completely crazy. The same doctors espousing these beliefs, if you look in their um, record books, they're filled with black people dying of malaria, yellow fever, you know? Wow. But the belief was so important to for maintaining the slave system because that belief, you, you could say, your rationale for making black people work under conditions that you would never make other people work under. They used to believe that a climate caused malaria. So other white people could, or Native Americans could not work in that climate, which you could send black people into work in that climate because here you have doctors saying they don't die from malaria. You're fine. So we laugh at that, but look what we have today. We have diseases that we that we say only black people get. Crack babies. There were no white crack babies, right? 
only black ones. So um, even sickle cell anemia, even educated people believe that's a black disease, which it is not. You will find sickle cell anemia anywhere on the globe where you find the Anopheles mosquito because the Anopheles mosquito spreads malaria and being a uh, carrier for sickle cell anemia, what they call a heterozygote for sickle cell anemia offers protection against malaria. A lot of these black diseases are still with us. We still believe in these, in these myths about who gets what kind of disease and who, who is immune to it. Wow. Well, thank you for busting that myth for us, Harriet, because I think the reality is that many of us have bought into uh, that myth and that lie that sickle cell disease is a Black disease. Uh, I know that I certainly have, um, and I know that it's what we've been told, right? And if we're told something, even if it's false, uh, enough what we hear with enough frequency, it becomes concretized, right? And it becomes... uh, true to us, right, in our minds, even though it is not actually true. And so speaking of history uh, and racists, I want to actually lift up a passage, actually two excerpts from your book, uh, Medical Apartheid. I am reading from the Black Stork chapter, which was so intense. Uh, I, and I'm under the uh, the subheading, and under the subheading, The Negro Project, um, I want to lift specifically about Margaret Sanger. And so I'm reading two two excerpts from your book. I'm reading from page 195, and I'll be reading from page 198 as well. So, and I'm quoting you here, and it says, or you wrote, Margaret Sanger, born to a Corning New York socialist in 1883, was the most famous American popularizer of eugenics. Although she is usually lauded as a powerful birth control pioneer and as a feminist, All these labels fit. Her abundant writings, speeches, and myriad projects reveal a complex, passionate woman whose mission changed over time from women's rights advocacy to eugenics. Sanger shaped American reproductive policy by toppling the Comstock laws against contraceptive distribution, by catalyzing the development of birth control pills, and by founding the organization that became Planned Parenthood, the nation's 12th largest charitable organization. But she did so in alliance with eugenicists. And through initiatives such as the Negro Project, Sanger exploited Black stereotypes in order to reduce the fertility of African Americans. That's the end of the first excerpt. And then the second excerpt is on page 198. And I'll start here. It says, But Sanger's experiment of addressing Black social ills with the application of negative eugenics via Black birth control clinics was so successful that it persists today. Um, So Harriet, I want to ask you if you can talk to us about what eugenics is, how it persists today, and if you could talk to us about the ways that Sanger uh, used our Black icons uh, to be complicit in eugenics. Sure. Eugenics is the amelioration, the improvement of society through changing the gene pool. And you can do that in several ways. You can encourage people who you have decided have got a good gene pool, full of the traits that one would want in society, um, to be intelligent, to be uh, honest, because laughingly, laughably, they believe that things were controlled by genes that are probably not controlled by genes at all. Devoid of criminality, you know, law, law abiding. They thought that you could take people who had these traits and let them breed among each other. That's positive eugenics, to encourage breeding among people who have good traits. But the negative eugenics is what happened in this country that concerned African-Americans. And negative eugenics is preventing people with quote unquote bad genes from breeding, from entering the gene. So black people, by definition, had bad genes because they had the kind of traits and characteristics and behavior that eugenicists thought were negative, undesirable. They were more likely to be unintelligent, more likely to be criminal, more likely to be ugly and unattractive. This was actually part of their writing. So um, they wanted to select them out of the gene pool. And that's what Margaret Sanger and eugenics um, eugenicist friends did. And by the way, when people talk about eugenics, they often point the finger at Germany in 1933, National Socialism. And they did have a very vigorous eugenic agenda, but we started it. We began around 1915, and the Germans actually learned a great deal of eugenics from us. 
our scientists sent them journal articles showing how we made sure that black people, for example, could not inter intermarry with white people. And um, anyone who had made it with a black person would actually be removed from the quote unquote white gene pool. So, and the Germans used to brag that, oh, our policies are a lot more liberal than the ones in the US. We'll allow somebody who's one quarter Jewish to be a German, for example, but you have a one drop rule and any black compliment is enough to take someone out of the white pool. So that's eugenics. And in terms of um, how it's happening today, it's amazing to me that, I mean, I, I'm not sure how to put this, but I'll just say that eugenics is very much practiced today in a very vigorous way. And I think we've, we've mm. stopped labeling that. It doesn't mean we stopped doing it. Go back, for example, to uh, contraceptive use. Now, contraceptive use is, is um, kind of tricky because the reality is black women then and now wanted reproductive control like everybody else. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be able to access the contraceptives, right? But when you give people access to contraceptives, at the same time, you're withholding other types of basic care for health issues that are threatening their lives, then your agenda is not necessarily trying to cater to their needs. You're actually prizing, controlling their reproduction over improving their health. And that's what's going on. And so it's kind of a tricky thing because um, it's not a binary position. So you can't say that a black women want or don't want reproductive care. You know, they want it, but they know enough to be to warily eye the people who give it to them, you know? And of course, there's a, a, div a divide there. I'm not going to go into. That. I talk about this in the book. You know, there like a, there's a gender divide and other divide and, and class divides in terms of who wants reproductive care, who wants contraceptives, abortion, things like that. But what's really important to me is that Sanger began by targeting black communities. She knew. See, it's important to remember that contra giving contraceptive information during her mm. time at the beginning of her career was actually illegal. So she, you know, she did not think it wise, I'm assuming, to just march into a white community and start opening birth control mm. clinics. She went to Fisk University. She went to Harlem, where black people were, because she wisely realized that people would be less appalled if she did it in black communities, because they would, they would actually agree with the um, goal of reducing black fertility, no matter what they thought about contraceptive itself. And, and abortion itself, they'd be more amenable to it if it's practiced among black people, negative eugenics, taking them out of the gene mm -hmm. pool. Unfortunately, the people who agreed to that and were eager to see black people's uh, fertility reduced included some very important and prominent black leaders. I was, I was really crestfallen to find out that W.E. Du Bois signed, not only signed off on this, but vigorously promoted the eugenic agenda. Buddy Charles Johnson, who was then president of Fisk, and a slew that I'm, whose names I mentioned in Medical Apartheid, many, yeah. many influential black leaders who were otherwise quite cutting edge were adamantly, you know, in favor of reducing um, reproduction among the lower class of black people. So the class entered into it. You had, yeah, yeah, you had yeah, higher, higher class black people. Uh, insisting on lower class black people having their fertility reduced. Really, really sad state of affairs. Hmm. Wow, wow. And you see that parallel classism. Yes, you know, um, you, I think sometimes, I don't know if any, you remember her, but do you happen to remember Mildred Jefferson? You know, when I was just entering school, she was a, she was the first black woman to graduate from Harvard Medical School and a brilliant woman. But I remember that Faye Waddleson, Waddleton was president of um, Planned Parenthood. And mm. she was a black woman, a very powerful black woman, is, I should say. And Mildred Jefferson um, opposed her. You know, Faye Waddleton is like advocating for reproductive control for all women, but of course, focusing on black women as well. You know, she's acknowledging the fact they've had less access. But Mildred Jefferson was saying no. You know, we, I don't believe in contraceptive. I think uh, abortion is murdering a child. She was very conservative in terms of, um, of acceding to reproductive rights. And she was very adamant to it. I remember asking her at one point, 
But um, what would you say to women who say that they're just trying to, they're just asking for control of their own bodies? And she said, a woman has already lost control of her body when she becomes pregnant. That's not even the issue. So you can see she was very much a hard liner there. We have, unfortunately, a history of some some people who have actually impeded the pro- progress of Black women when it comes to gaining um, control over their own reproduction. Hey, Em. Hey. I see you over there with those new glasses, girl. Where'd you get those from? Oh, I love my Warby Parker glasses. Yes, I did their free home try-on, which lets you order five pairs of glasses and try them on. Just figure out which ones you want for five days. And there's no obligation to buy. Um, But of course, once you get the Warby Parker glasses, you're going to be showing them to your friends and family. You're going to be flipping out because you didn't have to pay for shipping. You didn't have to pay to ship them back. And when you see the prices, starting at $95, including the prescription lens, mm. this it's an incredible experience. So I picked the Felix, the Yates, the Daisy, and the Zelda, which had a little okay. more like, ooh, am I like a Marvel character kind of flair? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Legends of Zelda. Um, <laughs> right, it felt legendary. <laughs> but I ended up going with the Joe, and um, I love the Joe. I chose the rose color, so it kind of looks like I mean, you know, it looks like hipster pink yeah, is what it looks right, like with right. some translucent things in there. But I really like Warby Parker because it was founded with a super rebellious spirit and a lofty goal of creating boutique quality mm. at a revolutionary price point. And when you buy a pair of glasses, they give a free pair to someone in a working class or impoverished community around the world. And that means that every time that you take part in their vision of affordable accessories, they think of eyewear as an accessory. And every time you do that, you're actually giving back. So I love it. Wow. Now tell me, how can our um, listeners get themselves a little, you know, a little free something, something for five days? Uh, You know, all you have to do, if you you want to let Warby Parker know (laughs) that we told you about them, then you should visit warbyparker.com slash table. It's a special link just for our listeners to go and order a home try-on kit, share the experience, tweet us, let us know that you tried it on. And also make sure that if you have an iPhone, you can download Warby Parker's app where you use their brand new virtual try-on. You can try on the eyeglasses, see the realistic color, texture, and size of each style. And all you have to do is have an iPhone X. That's kind of crazy to me that you can do all that with an iPhone, but you know, wonders <laughs> never, never cease. <laughs> yes. They also now have blue light filtering lenses at warbyparker.com. So I think it's totally worth it, um, with just at the price point that it is, to try it out. And they're, all of their frames are, are super high quality. And a lot of their designs are really cool. Well, sisters, Get your free home try-on pairs at warbyparker.com slash table. Take a selfie, tweet us, Instagram us. We want to see what you're looking like with your new Warby Parker glasses. Warbyparker.com slash table. You know, one of the, I guess, famous signature studies that we think about when it comes to, um, African-Americans being targeted and mistreated through research is, of course, the Tuskegee experiment. But I've also, I've also heard you talk about how, in some ways, fixating on just the Tuskegee experiment uh, causes us not to look at uh, just how common and widespread um, the targeting of African-Americans has been throughout history and even maybe presently uh, for experimentation. And I'm wondering if you could share with us one or two other uh, research studies that unethically use Black folks um, for experimental gains? Well, I have an entire book about that. <laughs> you know, yeah, you do. It's very hard to take out one or two. I mean, <laughs> there's so many. And actually, I know, the thing is, I know that I'm in the minority here, but I also know I'm the only one who's done a book that exhaustively looks at these studies. Mm-hmm. So when I say that Tuskegee's of the study was actually one of the less damaging studies and actually a kind of misdirection while you're so worried about what happened at Tuskegee, which was wrong, which was abusive, which was horrible. 
but it take it misdirects people's attention to the truly horrendous things that were happening that were much worse, much more bloody, much more exploitive, much more damaging than Tuskegee. And what I will do is I'll point out at the same time that the Tuskegee study was withholding treatment from men who were infected because the men had not been infected by the researchers in the study. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that they wouldn't, they would have done it if they'd had to, I think, but they didn't have to. They found plenty of people who were already were um, infected. So they didn't have to infect anyone. So, um, but at the same time, they were withholding treatment for these men. Um, There were researchers who were actively killing people by taking people who um, had, um, basically they were trying to cure syphilis with malaria. It sounds really crazy. But the thinking was that if you had someone who had syphilis and some other diseases as well, um, it was an infectious disease. If you gave them malaria, they thought the very high fevers caused by malaria might actually kill the pathogens in them. It didn't work. But what they did was they were infecting these people with malaria and they found that African-Americans for various reasons um, did not, were not infected as easily with the type of malaria they were using. They were using Vivax and malaria strains and African-Americans didn't tend to get sick as easily with them. So they thought, okay, we'll use a falciparum strain. They never used falciparum on whites. They didn't use it because at that time it had a 40% fatality rate. It was a much worse disease, but they did it for blacks. And when some black people died in the experiment, their records were falsified. Wow. To make, so they were basically killing these people. And yet you don't see a word about that. It was very hard to get details about this work that had been done. So, um, you know, the focus on Tuskegee not only takes away from understanding the, the most the more widespread and horrific things that were done. The other thing that it does is that by, I see many studies, many studies, even now still being done that ask the question, that ask the question, well, how did the Tuskegee study make African-Americans afraid of medical research? Now look at the wording of that that question. That's not an open question. That's a complex statement. Basically you're assuming from the beginning that it was Tuskegee. This is done often. And that's completely illogical. I mean, if you were a student and designed a study like that, you'd be called out for it. But researchers who have a um, good reputation, who are highly esteemed, have written many studies like that, so many of them. The numbers are all over the place, but it's not a valid question. The real question should be, did Tuskegee? Or a better question would be, what caused the fear? Well, Thomas Levice an African-American researcher at uh, Johns Hopkins. I think he had retired maybe four or five years ago, but not before he did exactly the study that we need. He did an open study asking why do African-Americans fear medical research more than other Americans? He found out that people who knew about, who did not know about Tuskegee were more likely to fear medical research. Wow. Yes. So just posing the question in a scientifically logical way can, you know, be very powerful. And we just haven't done enough of that when it comes to studying African-Americans in medical research. Harriet, hearing you speak about African-Americans in the history of experimentation actually makes me think about Africans, specifically Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to our listeners and talk to them about the ways that Sub-Saharan Africa has been used as America's laboratory. Absolutely. Um, variety of reports, including one in the New England Journal of Medicine, actually quite old, indicate that two out of five clinical trials are now conducted in the developing world. Now, more recent studies have upped that number to, you know, one out, one out of three. And it's burgeoning. Increasingly, I'm sorry, not one out of three, two out of three, two out of three studies. So, most studies that are being conducted now are being conducted in the developing world, in the global south, in Africa, you know, Brazil, Thailand, poor places where people of color live. Why? Because if you go to these areas, you can find highly trained researchers, like in this country. You can find quality researchers, but you can also pay them much, mm-hmm. much less. Okay? 
You can pay less for the researchers. You can pay less for the studies. And also, there are laws governing uh, the studies basically that say if you're an American researcher doing research in the third world, developing world, global south, you have to follow the same rules as in the U.S., and you also have to follow the rules of the Declaration of Helsinki. problem with that being following the rules in the U.S., all you have to do is say, oh, yes, of course I did. Of course I gave everyone informed consent. Nobody's going to check up on you. And I have talked personally to quite a few researchers who have told me, oh, no, we don't do informed consent. We don't ask individuals yes or no. I said, and I ask why. They always say the same thing. Well, the culture there is such that um, they don't want that. They want you to talk to the headman. They want you to talk to the father or the husband. Or no, They don't want individual informed consent. And we respect their culture. So one guy, Australian guy, who told me that, I said, oh, you respect their culture, you respect their feelings. Yes, yes. He said, if you work there, you'd understand. You don't want to, um, you know, actually betray their culture, their sensibilities. You know, it would be very invasive to go and ask an individual woman, for example. You don't do that. You go to her husband. You go to the headman. I said, well, if you want to respect their feelings and culture, I guess that when you're finished with the study, you give all of them the medication for free, right? So they can utilize it. Oh, no, 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 no. I said, why not? I'm sure, have you asked them? I'm sure they want that medication that that you tested on them. So it's not about respecting the culture. It's about saving money. So you save money by doing that. And um, increasingly, it's in the developing world. And increasingly, informed consent is going out of the window. In um, Nigeria, Pfizer tested their drug Trovan on children during a meningitis epidemic. And a lot of the children lost their hearing. Some of them died, otherwise injured. And... I was so impressed because Pfizer, there's a variety of lies told. They produce consent forms, and it later turned out the Nigerian doctor admitted that they had made up the forms, and he had, wow. and he had signed them after the fact. So he admitted it was a lie in open court. So um, then the other forms, they, Pfizer said they had lost. Now, writing my book, Lost Forms, is something I heard every, other, every day. Where's the documentation if didn't form consent? Oh, the forms were lost. There was a fire, you know. But the bottom line is that there is no, no one will look overseeing them and the rules are being bent left and right. And they're doing studies without getting people's consent, which also makes the study cheaper. You can just go along in a very fast clip without bothering about getting informed consent. And it makes a lot of money, which means that they're perfecting all these drugs. But then when the drug is, has been perfected using their bodies to study it, mm. the drug is not made available to them. And the, and, and we're told, oh, people in that part of Africa, they can't afford, they can't afford the drug. The antibiotic costs $1,000 a month and they can't afford that. So we don't sell it there. Mm. So you use these people, you know, use the cheap labor of their researchers, but now you won't sell them the drug that they need. So a lot of the dialogue about giving people in the in, um, developing world medications they can't afford is that we can't... We in the U.S., we in the West, we can't afford to treat the whole world. We can't afford to treat all these poor people in development. It's very sad, but we can't afford it. But I say they're looking at it in the wrong way. We, we actually are in their debt. We owe these people. We would not have these drugs if it weren't for them. So we should, we should consider it cheap to give them the drug free after we perfected using them. I mean, so that's that's my soapbox. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a very legitimate one, <laughs> by the way. You know, uh, Harriet, you know, our series that we're kicking off our season three podcast with is uh, You Okay, Sis. And we are asking this question to Black women, and it's a way for us to um, center them and to get us to take a moment to think about in all the ways, are, are we truly okay, uh, spiritually, medically, financially, et cetera. And as I'm even thinking about our, our time together today, this interview I'm quite overwhelmed. I'm, I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, and these are things I've read and I know about and still listening to this conversation, I'm left thinking, what do we do when we know that we're not okay, but we also feel um, rightfully so afraid to access uh, the medical world in some way, shape or form. And so I, I want to have you help us through that a little bit, just to offer maybe your wisdom or from your research. Um, what do you say to African-Americans who are like, no, nope, uh, 
hospitals are bad. <laughs> um, yeah. They don't care about us. Right, right. <laughs> um, if if I go, they're going to tell me I have something. And I, at least right now, I can act like I don't have anything. Right, like, right. Talk a little bit about that. <laughs> There's a lot of ma- you know magical thinking in a sense around that too. So so can you can you help us with that? What would you say? I completely understand feeling that way. I completely understand it. And uh, I mean, I'm not immune. I've been there too. You know, I go into a hospital. I see a black woman. I, went, I remember one time I went to the emergency department. The first thing I was asked was, well, "What's your welfare number?" You know, I mean, just the assumption. Not that you know, there's no to me. There's no stigma about being on welfare, but the idea that you look at me and you think you know everything you need to know about me. You know, that alone would keep me out of a hospital. But here's the thing: it's okay to be scared. It's a human condition. And if you're black, it is certainly, you know, a normal condition. It's okay to be scared. Be scared, but then, but don't be paralyzed. It's not okay to be paralyzed. Mm -hmm. So in order to avoid paralysis, I always tell people, you know, it's important not to be binary in your thinking. You know, you can't think things are either black or white, A or B, one or two, because that's not how life is. The reality is these institutions for the most part, do not care about us. And if you go to them, you are going to be belittled. You are going to have a negative experience in many ways. But ask yourself, what do you want? You know, you want to be healthy. You have a right to be healthy. You have a right to the same care as anybody else. So there are things you can do to maximize your chances of getting that. And you can get that, you know, but you have to do a little planning beforehand. So I always tell people, first of all, realize that you're going to have that experience and be prepared for it. You know, when I worked in an emergency department and I always tell people, number one, don't get loud. Okay. Don't get emotional. They're, they're waiting for that. They're ready for that. What you have to do is try to forge the relationship you want between you and a healthcare provider. And one of the ways to do that is to go in prepared to try to um, speak to that person's desire to be a good physician or a good nurse, because most people no matter how biased they are, went into medicine because they wanted to help people. You know, most people still want to do that. And even though they're racist and biased, if you can access that, you should not have to do that work, but that's, this is the real world, world and you do have to, you know? And um, I would say, tell them, instead of yelling and, 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 you know, carrying on, which you're justified in doing, be prepared to talk to the, to the guy and say, listen, I'm really scared. I'm, you know, I have a concern here. I'm intelligent. I'm certainly able to understand everything you say to me. I need to know that you're partnering with me and you really are invested in my being well. You know, talk them on that level. But very important, bring an ally. Most of us have a nurse or a medical student or a doctor or somebody who knows the healthcare system. Bring that person with you. That can make all the difference for a lot of reasons. One is jargon. You know, which I've noticed, it's a sad thing to say, I've noticed that some doctors deploy jargon in a way. You know, they use it strategically. And you are communicated with poorly and leave not really sure what happened or what you've been told. And having an expert with you will stem that off. Also, having an expert with you helps with socializing. You know, doctors and nurses get socialized. You know, the thing is, even if they are biased and racist, they're more than biased and racist. They're also socialized as a doctor or as a nurse. So bring somebody with you who can also talk to them on that level, you know? But um, so there are things that you can do, you know, write out your questions beforehand, prepare. That's the bottom line. Prepare, 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 and go in there with an ally. And your chances will be much, much better having a positive interaction. And remember it doesn't really pay you to argue with a healthcare provider if you can help it. Because what you want is for that person to be invested in your care. And the way to do that is to appeal to that part of the person who still that still wants to be a good care provider. That's what I tell people in my family. That's what people what I know and and I hope that's useful to other people as well. Harriet, thank you so much for those very practical tips. I mean, the one that I know I'm taking to heart is that I would love for you to be uh, uh, the table, Truth's Table's uh, medical <laughs> ally, our medical buddies. So when we go into our own individual appointments, we bring you along and we know that we're going to be treated right. You know, So, <laughs> so we, will, we would absolutely love that. Um, but no, thank you. 
for the ways that you've actually served to empower our sisters at the table. Our hope is that they are now uh, feel emboldened uh, and that they now are armed with some wisdom and that they have the confidence that is necessary to go into their doctor's appointments uh, and knowing that they they can go in and ask the right questions, the difficult questions, um, but do so in a way where you can win uh, the medical pro- profession professional who is actually going to be serving them. So thank you for that uh, very wise counsel um, and those practical t- tips that I know uh, us women at the table and our sisters can also apply as well. And so now, Harriet, this is your time to talk to our listeners, uh, share the projects that you have going on, how they can follow your work and keep up with what you're doing, maybe access your journal articles, go ahead and just share with them what you're, what, what, what you have going on next? Well, you know, my, I have a book coming out in July about environmental racism. And I'm focusing on something that I don't think is getting enough attention. And is that, you know, we know that African Americans and Hispanic people of color in this country are living in war zones. And by war zones, I'm, I don't mean only the violence, you know, only the atmosphere of hostility and the fear. I also mean we're living in a sea of environmental toxins. You know, we're, we live in neighborhoods that are right next to industries that spew toxins, un, almost unregulated or poorly regulated. And we're living in, the whole country is full of flints. You know, flint has gotten a lot of attention. I'm really glad that it has gotten a lot of attention. But the important thing to remember is that flints are scattered to the whole country. It's not one city. You know, it's wherever you find a concentration of black people, you're going to find a concentration of lead, mercury, arsenic, and these things assault the body, but they also cripple the brain. And I'm really concerned about the effect it's having on our cognition, our ability to think, and on behavior, behavior of our children. So I don't see enough attention being paid for that, but we're now at the point, fortunately, where there are researchers out there who've actually quantified this. For example, they, um, one of the things I've noticed is that when you read about it in the paper or magazine, the racial aspect seems to be hedged pretty heavily. You don't often read about it being a racial issue. In fact, in Flint, it took two and a half years until they, first, they finally began calling it you know, a racial um, issue, a problem of African-Americans. First two and a half years, they called it socioeconomic risk. And that's how, what you read usually. You'll read about socioeconomic risk in cities like Aniston that are majority black and have been assaulted by a variety of toxins, but it's actually racial. And um, for example, white people who have incomes of $10,000 or less, extremely poor white communities are less likely to be, have environmental hazards next to them than black communities where they earn 50 to $60,000. It's middle-class black communities very often in rural areas, not just in cities, that are being assaulted, preferentially assaulted by these toxins. And um, one researcher calculated that every year we lose 23 million IQ points to lead. Mm. Wow. And most most of the people being affected by that are people of color. I think it's really important to realize that, you know, this brain drain is dramatic and it's affecting us preferentially. The most important thing is that this is something that we can reverse. We can we can end that. If we begin, we have a, an EPA that has been dramatically crippled by Trump's policies. If the EPA began doing a better job of protecting people, they could actually, you know, you know, remove this and remove this um, this hazard to us. But until then, there are some things we can do ourselves that I have in the book, and there are things that can be done on like a municipal level on the lower level. But the important thing is that, you know, this brain drain is happening, but it's not like a physical illness. Like if people were being born without one arm or one leg, we would do something and we see it in an emergency. But when you've got people being born with, you know, malformed brains or with their cognition lowered by 10% because they're next door to, um, you know, a plant that's emitting air pollution or lead or mercury, So um, I think that that's really important. And the final thing I'll say about that is the hereditarian theories that seem to have drive, they drive the debate about intelligence in the country. You know, hereditarians believe that 
Black and Hispanic people are born are born innately with lower intelligence than white people. Some white people have been saying this uh, since the 1600s. Another myth that's been very persistent about black people. But, you know, now they are using bi- biological arguments to buttress it. We're measuring the IQ. We can show you that it's lower. If it is lower, it's not innate. It's a result of this poisoning, the mass poisoning. So um, it's urgent. Even though it's not something we can see, it's very urgent. And uh, I'm really, you know, excited about sort of making making it clear what's going on. And I'm hoping eventually there'll be some action around it. Thank you, Harriet. I mean, just as uh, there was action behind medical apartheid, and it's still beginning to make a positive impact uh, on the industry and just even within our community, just having that knowledge. And we're certain that your your upcoming book on environmental racism will also have very tangible impacts as well and results. And we'd love to, of course, have you back uh, for that as well. And thank you for educating not just our people, but people outside um, of our community too, so that they can understand the gravity um, of what's happening in the medical industry. So thank you for taking a seat at the table with us, Harriet. Thank you so much for your advocacy um, and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And your work is very important and it's valuable. It's been an honor spending time with you ladies. Hope to come back. Thank you so much, Ariel. And of course, we want to thank our sisters for sitting at the table with us this week. Uh, let's keep the conversation going. Tweet us your thoughts about you okay, sis? Medical Apartheid with Harriet A. Washington using the hashtag TruthsTable. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TruthsTable or email us your thoughts at asktruthstable at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Truth Table has a Patreon account now, so you can send us your love offerings at www.patreon.com slash slash truths table or you can bless us at our paypal which is www.paypal.me slash truths table and just so you all know uh, i have actually offered a time of intercessory prayer on tuesday nights from 8 p.m to 8 30 throughout the course of this series because we know that it's really heavy um, in nature. So the dialing code and the access code are available on our Instagram and our Twitter. So please join me uh, every Tuesday night to pray, uh, just to have some support and some fellowship and and bring all of these things uh, to our great God. Remember that Truth's Table is made possible in part by Pottery Studios. Visit Pottery.com for the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer for the show is Joshua Heath. Our executive producer is Bo York, and we have been your hosts, Akemini, Michelle, and Christina. We'll see you soon on the next Truth Table. Bye, y'all.